this film is a walk in the consciousness. There's no dramatic tension, structure, act one, act two, act three. It was made kind of subconsciously, which is a, a, the involuntary memory. It's an incredible resource of imagination. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a man returns home and works through an existential crisis in director Alejandro G. Iñárritu's comedic drama, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. The film follows a renowned Mexican journalist and documentary filmmaker who is compelled to return to his native country unaware that this simple trip will force him to grapple with intimate questions about identity, mortality, Mexican history, and what it means to be human in these peculiar times. In addition to Bardo, Iñárritu's directorial credits include the DGA award-winning feature films The Revenant and Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance and the DGA award-nominated film Babel. In 2012, he received the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Commercials for his Procter & Gamble spot, Best Job. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Iñárritu spoke with director Rodrigo Garcia about filming Bardo, false chronicle of a handful of truths. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. We usually have these conversations in Spanish at 2 a.m. and with alcohol. So hopefully we'll be okay. So I want to ask you some questions about process. You know, a movie like this that is part drama, you know, so many areas like a husband and wife trying to overcome a trauma, parents and children, displaced children, adult children of parents, and then the movie that has got one foot in fact and in fiction, in life and in death, success and fail. I mean, there's so many themes treated with such incredible freedom. Where the hell do you start? I mean, what, what was first, an idea, an image, a theory? What was day one? Well, um, thank you for doing this, Rodrigo. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It's, it's difficult because, uh, in a way, um, uh, I have never worked uh, with this kind of material, meaning the fabric of this material is made of things that, as you said, are, are very dialectical. You know, there is no conclusions, there is no, there is no answers, it, there's only basically mysterious things that has moved around energetically, subconsciously, emotionally, during the last 20, 25 years of my life. And it, uh, you know, I said that I made this film with my eye closed because it it was a journeying word and then identify, detect, curate all these um, events and memories from my own experience, from my family experience, from a collective consciousness of my country, events and story, things from the past, from the present, from fears from the future, and all this mess, all this pozole, this guacamole of ideas, in a way, became kind of 
you know, confusing and, and with nonsense, let's put it that way. There was no structure, no recipe, uh, no experience, but I needed, I needed to explore, like clean my closet. The last 25 years, my, my family and I moved 21 years ago to California, to Los Angeles from Mexico. And suddenly I felt after the Revenant that, and it was after there, I did a virtual reality project, uh, an installation called Carne Arena about immigrants that crossed the border. And that in a way felt for me like a, suddenly I realized that I have been like riding a car at 200 miles per hour without looking to the mirror and said, how that happened? It was a plan of one year and then 20 years happened. I am here. How the hell I got here? So it was a, a way to put things in, a, in order, closing a little bit more to that last migration that we all will have, you know, which is death. And then we, you start thinking about that possibility and then your life start getting a little bit weird, you know, start thinking about story from the last point of view to the beginning. So in a way, I'm, I haven't answered your question, but I don't have an answer. Uh, but, but don't stop. <laughs> no, I don't have an answer because all those things were laid down in the table and those things were, again, uh, it, it, this film is a walk in the consciousness only and, and there is no reason, there is no, there is no dramatic tension, structure, act one, act two, act three, uh, plot point. It was not made rationally. It was made kind of uh, uh, subconsciously, which is a, a, the involuntary memory. It's an incredible resource of imagination. And I don't mean that these were things that were real and, or, or were a lie. There is the fiction, and fiction in a way helped me to identify very truthful things that were, I was emotionally convinced that that was the way and uh, and then by fictionalize them or lie about them in a way that helped me to get to a higher truth about it. It was not about the events of or me. It's only the I disappearing. These kind of emotions that I think I share with many people about all the themes that you have just said. You know, <clears throat> I will I will argue though that you know you discover you you discuss it with great freedom like a free flowing dream, but I think you know you 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 can't help but bring you know, your talents and skill as a filmmaker where the movie may not have a, an, a usual structure, but it is full of suspense. It starts asking questions from the beginning. And in that sense, it's very beguiling. You want to know what is going on here. Who is this man? What is, what is his crisis? So, and, and I'm curious because, you know, we're at the Guild and of course, we're, you know, this is director central here. Um, there is a point where you have to sit down and try to shape it and, of course, communicate it to others. Uh, I saw you at another Q&A where you s introduced your screenwriter, Nico, as your therapist. <laughs> so how did you, you know, where, because you have these feelings and these ideas, but at some point, you know, interior day kitchen, you know, you, how, how do you communicate? How did, how did your initial conversations with Nico become something that can be, you know, photographed? Well, I think that was one of the challenges because all these abstract things that we all have in our interior life, in our intimate spaces, we have created uh, our own narrative of events, our brothers, sisters, our parents, our friends, our success, our failures, our fears, our insecurities, our thing. All, all that is part of each of us. And we all have that. 
And then you have the public figure, who you are with certain kind of friends, but who you are with your parents and who you are when you return to your town and where you, who you are in the workspace and all these kind of very complicated things that is the, 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 the who we are in a way. In a way, it, it can get very confused. So all those things that we are made of, in a way I could have, and I even thought about it like, Maybe I should write a journal or maybe a memory of, for me, not for the public, who will care about it. And, but then I thought that if I work and, and approach them with a the rational mind, like to write an article about my experience as an immigrant, whatever, in a way it, it was reducing and, and there is no way to approach those things because those things didn't happen that way or does, doesn't have any meaning. I think the only way I could do it was, again, to fictionalize it and to use what I know how to do, or I'm learning still, but I, I have been doing it, which is cinema. And I think art, in a way, helped us to representate things that, in a way, are very reductive and then enlighten us to express and understand things or, or see it in a different perspective way, in a better way, because life is not enough. So I think art exists because life is imperfect. As John Godard said, that life was a film bad made. And that's why we do films. <laughs> and I think in a way is I have to make life a little better that we can liberate some wounds and some pain by enlightening them, by fiction, by lying to ourselves and relieve that with a reinterpretation about losing a child or to have a mother with dementia or things like that. There are things that are not solved, that they cannot have an answer but in a way, film or a novel or a painting or a music can help you to, to, to ease that and to, to, to understand it from another subconscious, mysterious way the universe works, sometimes in favor, sometimes against us. So these things, I, I said, okay, I want that. Now that I have these things, that they cannot be reduced to a rational event, uh, I wanted to, to, I put it in the table and I didn't have an idea, a clue how to start doing it. But by understanding in a four-year process with Nico about what that meant and how it was connected with other things, actions that, I, that we took years before, it will resonate later and we will understand. Um, kind of that happened during the process. Suddenly I was laying down all these things. But then to turn them in an idea was a huge process. So like how these, I turn it in a scene or in a sequence. The film is built in 32 sequences. So each sequence is in a way has an idea to, to explore, again, with no conclusion, with no... But it was now an idea and a sequence. And then to blend them was a matter to, you know, to be threatening little things. And I said, okay, these resonate this way and that thing. So it was intuition. The biggest part was how to make that, how to flesh that out. I always thought that I was doing a very intimate, interior little movie. I underestimate what it needed to be done. So you write, yeah, uh, you know, Silverio walking to a body, it's a pyramid of bodies talking to Cortez, and you, <laughs> and then, and well, then you arrive to production. That's where movies are ruthless. <laughs> when you say she comes through the door, she has to come through the door. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that was the thing, the process of the very, very abstract, elusive material to turn it into an idea, to turn it in a sequence, and then to find out how the hell you're going to do that. For me, it was a, 
a very incredible, the most challenging experience I have done as a filmmaker because I have never worked with this material and in this way, never in my life. You know? So, I mean, at what point, there must have been a point where you're saying, for example, you thought of it very intimately, but the canvas became huge. I mean, was there a point in the screenwriting where you said, oh yeah, this, this can only be told if I fly as high as I can, right? There was a point where where Nico must have understood it that way also, right? I mean, his, his own imagination must have been engaged. And then you had to communicate that to your production designer and to your DP. You know, how do you make everyone take the same drug? You know, how, 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 how does that happen? The, the, the thing is, I, because all those things came, again, not from a very, um, I was not saying this is what happened uh, as a biography or, or a realistic event. The film is navigating all the time in, in between reality and imagination all the time. And, and, and I wanted to feel, and I felt as I was writing that it was not me. It was the self or the, the, the consciousness observing those events and the emotions that those events meant for me. So there was a, a, an observer, a witness of that, that it was beyond the eye. It was something that I was seeing that and I was seeing this character. I, I, I cannot explain, but it was not like me and it was not the truth and it was not the event. Is what I can say is when you when you realize that you are dreaming, we all have had lucid dreams, right? That you are aware that you are dreaming. So you know you are dreaming, which is a fantastic experience because we are witnessing our own consciousness being at work, which is the best part of ourselves. And we don't react to these events. And these lucid dreams has always a quality that they are not hallucination or crazy. They are really found, founded in real things that represent other things for our knowledge, for our wisdom to understand things in a much more higher thing than the rational uh, left side of our brain. And all those things always are a little bit off. Uh, there's a person that should not be there. There's something that it said that nobody should say. There's elements or time and spirits I blended or the light is moving. So every sequence I wanted to feel that way, the way I was feeling it. And I wanted the audience to feel that way. So for example, I have a lot of recurrent dream of, of flying, but not in a superhero thing, but always is flying very close to the ground and dangerous because any false move can kill you. And I said, okay, the first scene is this, it's just, is the dream start. It's a lucid dream that I'm dreaming, which is the end. And it's a circular kind of thing. When we realize that, okay, how you shoot a shadow beam flying, it took us one year to really execute it because it was a huge thing to say how we do this technically, beyond the, the, the fact how technically you can achieve that, that is real, but is dreamy, which kind of light, what is the direct, what is the location, all. So that became a huge, incredible journey as a director to start uh, finding the resources and the creativity with a great amount of collaborators, uh, you know, Darius Congi and Eugenio Caballero and Ana Terrazas, a huge amount of people who helped me out to get to the best way to interpret those kind of things, you know. Because I have to imagine in the process sometimes, you know, you, you see some of these ideas in process and you must think, oh, now that I'm seeing it, it's not my dream. It's too pedestrian. We have to keep expanding this 
Do you know what I mean? Were, were there ever times where you thought, no, it has to be even more dreamlike? I'm always worried. I'm always uh, fascinated between, you know, when you're making a movie, it's very ruthless. It's the death of imagination in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, the, it's, it's like waking you up and say, okay, now go fight the war. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you're saying that even just that flying, which I, I, I mean, I thought that was an extraordinary way to start the movie because it was like, it was an attempt at flying, a constant attempt at flying. And it told me immediately that the movie was going to be a kind of struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there must have been times where you thought this dream isn't taking off. I, I'm, I'm sorry to point of insecurities, but I know what it's like when you're making a movie. There's some points where you say, my idea was great in my head, but it's not, it's not gelling. Yes. Yes. And I think, uh, I think in that sense, I couldn't be more happy with the things that we achieved because there was a lot of pre-production. Uh, I storyboard every single scene. Uh, every department was informed. It took us the pre-production went two years, and the reason is because we shot in the middle of the pandemic. So I, we prepared the film for four or five months in pre-production, rehearsing every location. This film has been the most controlled, specific film that I have done in order to create this sensation because you cannot capture a dream and say, okay, let's shoot it and let's we improvise and it will make feel like weird. No, it doesn't happen that way. You have to design that. It was like a painting to make it feel everything was analyzed, study the colors, the, the lights are constantly moving, even you didn't know, but there's something that it feels off. And so what I'm saying is that it, and then one week before it starts shooting, the pandemic hit in the world. So we have to stop. Then we, we have six months, which I learned a lot about the pre-production. I shift things and then we start pre-producing again for six weeks. We start shooting in December of 2020, and then uh, people start getting sick. And we have incredible protocols of COVID, but it was the, in the middle of the pandemic. So we have to stop again. Three months later, we start pre-producing again. So what the one I'm saying is the pre-production helped me creatively to start finding tuning each of these kind of thing. And we rehearse everything with camera movements, with everything was extremely controlled. But it's true that when you are shooting... Sometimes the dream is not how you dream it. And that was, that was the most challenging. But I have to say that there's events like the Mexican-American war in that castle that are exactly where it happened or the conquest of Mexico. You know, it's, it's the biggest event in America, in, in this continent, right? The Spanish arriving, the Europeans and all what happened, destroying that empire. And I shot it in the same plaza that it happened in the Zocalo, where the pyramids of the empire was, which was very emotional and very powerful. Those events were so big that I needed to, to have a huge canvas as a mural in Mexico that they painted that way. There is no way or 120,000 disappearing people in Mexico in the last 10 years. How you talk about that? There's, there's documentaries, there's things, but there's 120,000 people disappear with no clue. And we have normalized that. How you talk about that? I want you to express how I felt as a Mexican that is happening now. So I need to portray this downtown full of that. So in a way, there was no way to make this humble little or no. It was, it's a huge, massive thing. The most challenging thing, funny enough, I think those were challenging in terms of production and all the things that we need to prepare. Closing the downtown, taking out the lights, shooting in the house of the president down there, putting bodies was crazy. 
or the dance scene, for example. But funny enough, the most difficult sometimes were the most intimate one. And the full, the film is 80% a lot of intimate scenes between them making love and the kid appear and the tone to find the right tone for that scene to not be stupid or not be extremely funny or extremely vulgar or extremely dramatic or extremely... And we shot in 65. So, and the way that Daniel Jimenez Cacho, the actor playing Silverio, sometimes speaks, sometimes doesn't speak, all that kind of uh, choreography, everything, in order to make it feel weird, even the most intimate, and that all the time the film is a liquid film that is thought from the last moments of a guy in the last thing where his life is appearing. It was extremely challenging by that same, the intimate and the big ones. But I can say that the intimates were even more difficult than the big ones. I I was going to ask you about that because, you know, we're talking, of course, about the big, more dreamlike, big canvas. But, you know, obviously I, you know, I was very moved by the family history, you know, the husband and wife who share a trauma, although they are generally happy and the children who are, you know, they felt, I, I was very moved when the daughter says, you know, I'm very sad that we left because of everything that didn't happen. So I, I thought the intimacy of the family had for me as much power as the big stuff in the movie. And, uh, you know, when, here's, here's, I think that anyone who writes and directs an original movie, you can't hide from your writing. Whether it's a self-portrait or not, that movie is you. And, you know, you, I think you've explained and I agree that it's not you, but the stuff felt incredibly personal. So, I, I mean, is there a struggle between how far do I go? How personal do I want to make it? How much do I undress? Is this too painful? Do I go to pain? You know, w- 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 talk a little bit about that in those intimate scenes. You know, again, it's a very thin line about the out-of-fiction nature kind of thing, which, again, it's it's personal, but it's fictionalized. So it's a weird kind of thing that you are seeing yourself. So what I can tell you is that Silverio Gama is an alter ego. You were, that is not me. Daniel Jimenez Cacho, which is here, I think, uh, that he did an amazing job and carried the film of his shoulders. He turns all these events in a personal experience. He had a father too that he lost 11 years ago. He has kids exactly the same age of my kids. Uh, he has been married for 30 years. So in a way he turns all this experience in a personal way. So, but there's no other answer that yes, this is extremely personal. And, uh, and I know who this guy is and I know how it, that's why I felt comfortable and uncomfortable about it. The process was very beautiful. I have a, an amazing, amazing family of my wife and my two kids, which in a way they allow me space to, uh, as my wife said wisely, there's four stories in this family, yours, your daughter, Maria, Eliseos, and me. And this is your person. And you can set whatever you want, the way you want it. This is your space. And they gave me the space, the support. It was a process that I shared. They gave me really honest opinions. I hear them, but I was never felt that. And for me, it was something to share that there was... I think even the, the the wounds, I will say, the wounds is where I think art can really enlighten that, is, is what art is made of, is, is, is when we can light those wounds. And I always mention this line of uh, Leonard Cohen when he said, there's a crack in everything and that's where the lights come in. And I think this is what I wanted, is, is to turn the light in things. And again, 
I think when you find yourself uh, unrooted with the affection so far away and the things that, as, the, as, 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 as Jimena, uh, Camila said in the pool, the things that never went, that never happened, even those things, I have been very proud of my kids and my wife and the way we have been handling all that thing because we have grown, but you have to express it. You have to talk about it in order to heal. So that was kind of the process that I went through, you know, that was my intention at least, you know. Yeah, no, I think that part of the movie is, uh, is extremely moving. You know, uh, production is always a bear, and this one must have been a few bears worth. So, you know, when you're on the set sometimes, and it's 3 a.m., and the rain machine is broken, and you're tired, and you haven't slept, and you had a bad weekend, do you have any touchstones? You know, what? Re I remember you saying once to me that, when you did um, Beautiful, you heard the same record every day. What was your touchstone here? You know, I, I feel like, you know, sometimes a director needs that one thing that reminds you at three in the morning in week 57 when you, you're lost. What, what could take you back to the heart of your movie? I would say that um, this was a, such a weird experience because we all were living by ourselves because the pandemic. So I was living by myself in, in an apartment in, in Mexico City with no family for months and months and months and months. So that loneliness, in a way, and no contact with my family even because everybody, I was exposed so much in this very protocol thing, but I, I didn't want to go with my mother, with my sisters. I mean, I was absolutely every day just going from my apartment to the set or to it and then return. I think in this case, the fact that I was doing something so specific, I, I, people ask me, did you were emotional when you were shooting that father scene in the bathroom, blah, blah. I said, when you are like having a surgery of an open heart, you cannot get emotional. You know what I mean? You have to be a, 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 a technician and concentrate to not kill the patient. Because if you get emotional and you start crying... You, can't, th you, you cannot... can't think about the patient's life. Uh, exactly. You have to just... You know. And I think that it was such a challenging film and with so much challenging things that in this case it was that. And musically it was this music that I knew that I will have, that I have the chance to participate with Bryce Dessner, that it, we, it was some, some whistles... You know, that story of the whistling of my father was a great whistling and I don't remember that whistle that made me so happy. So and I did some whistles of the tunes and we did some recording with some Oaxacan band. So all this music is very profound, Mexican, kind of exquisitely out of tune that you can play in a wedding and be happy or in a funeral and be very sad. And that's the tone that I was trying to get, like a nostalgic comedy that you can have it like Jewish music or Serbian music that has the quality of the humanity of them. Like flamenco. It's yeah. a, and it's a kind of blues. There's something very deep. And that was the music that was guiding me, you know, which is, was this well, bittersweet thing. I, w I wanted to ask you about the music because I, I know I've, um, I mean, I've seen you work in other movies and, you know, you work really hard for music and sometimes it's been a long process and, and your music is in some ways powerful, but also minimalist. You know, you don't like too much music. It's, 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 it's something that matters a lot to you, but it, that does not paint over the movie. Here you have a score that is this little band, you know, little bands from a little out of tune, which are very nostalgic to us. Um, then you have a, a more, I don't want to say traditional, but what we think of as a score, you know, more, more orchestrated, 
And then you have the two songs, which a cappella, the, the David Bowie and the Jose Jose. And then you have the whistling. So, I mean, this, this is the most jambalaya of musics that you've had. I, I'll just say that one of the things I loved about the whistling is in a movie like this that is about a big exploration and we live in a time where we reveal everything, there are things that we will never know, like what the whistling was. And I think that's great for us. But talk a little bit about, you know, so many different musics in your movie. Yeah, all, all these pieces is like a puzzle that I even actually does not know how that works, but all those things were meaningful in different way and resonate with me different times. And and for me, the music and the sound, it took us one year to really, the sound design was something that I was obsessed because Mexico, as you know, uh, Mexico City is the, the score and the soundtrack of Mexico City is crazy. Every corner is full of cumbia and shit and, and you know, polluted and whistling. I mean, it's a very particular... O oil frying. Uh, it's not Santa Monica, let's put it that way. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so that sound that is so, you know, chunky, I wanted to, to capture that in downtown and, um, and obviously these silences when he walking down. I want to create this huge... Uh, like a metaphysical kind of experience, again, of reference to the lucid dream experience and of state of mind. And I knew that the music and the way the a cappella thing came to me because when we are mumbling the lyrics of our favorite songs, we find ourselves connected to our very, very much selves of things that we really are meaningful to us in a very intimate way that belong to everybody, but we make them ourselves. We strip out the music and I thought I want to have this character at this moment really isolated in this joyful scene with the family and the kids and the friends and the cumbia and the whole thing. But suddenly the joy, the interior joy. And I thought, okay, this is great. And then Jose Jose, which is my favorite crooner, or Peter Gabriel Genesis when they are making love and the thing. So I wanted to, to understand how his mind was working through this device of stripping out the music. And all this landscape of sound... I always said that audiovisual medium is called cinema is an audiovisual and audio is first because audio is 70% of the, I hope that the audio was great today because I think that the audio in a way is primal. So, I mean, there is no intellectualization, it's not rational. It's a vibration that hit us in the body and there is no process. Images we have to you know, assimilate, understand. And, uh, and I knew that this film was something that you should not be fighting to understand, but to feel. And I think the audio for me was a way to put oil in the experience and understand from the body mm -hmm. things that I didn't know even the answer. Because yeah. if not, you can fight with it and you can hate it, which is understandable if you work with your rational mind. We only have a couple minutes, but I just want to ask you uh, if you can speak quickly about, you know, being your own editor and how that, you know, changed the way you look at your movie. I, I think in this case, uh, you know, in, in, in Amores Perros, my first film, I edited the film. It was a long process, eight-month process. And I enjoy it very much, but it was very, very difficult for me to, to, to put together that film. But I remember that, and, and I enjoy that a lot. Then I found Stephen Murione, who became my, my collaborator and great dear friend, and he's a genius editor, and I got so comfortable. This time, I knew that it was a very personal film in Spanish, and I knew that I had to do it. And I found this co-editor, which is Monica Salazar, which was great to, 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 to you know, to, to have the journey with her. 
And for me, it was such a joyful thing. You know, uh, I, I now I really consider if I do any other thing, I would like to edit because to, to be in touch with the material that way, um, it, it's, it, it was needed. I mean, honestly, it demands a lot, uh, but suddenly that 10 hours in the dark room and being touching the material and being understanding, I knew in this case, um, even when it was challenging, it, I needed to make it. And I really, really, really enjoyed doing it. I think it was the right thing, you know. Um, I, I enjoy that and writing. I think those are the best things. Then it comes to war. Well, it's, and the it's, a, it's a kind of writing, the editing, so... You know, it's yeah. exactly. exactly. I, I think we're done. Thank you very much. We're out of time, but thank you. Thank you very much, Rodrigo. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 